Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Alfonso Quadra is known as the godfather of real estate. He is a dynamic leader that's passionate about sharing his story and inspiring others to create the life they want and to never give up on their dreams. He truly is in the business of changing lives and has a very special gift in his ability to connect with people and to move them forward. He is the president and CEO of the Quadra Group of Companies. He is the founder of Quadra Youth Foundation, and he's also a real estate investor with over 23 years of experience and owns a multi-million dollar portfolio across Canada and the US. He has shared his story with thousands of audiences around the world, including being featured in Reader's Digest, which did a seven page profile that was published in 16 different countries in five different languages. He has a book available on Amazon, that is called From the Ground Up. You're three steps away from living the life of your dreams. He is also an award-winning business and real estate investor, educator, trainer, coach, and mentor to thousands of students across the US and Canada. This was a fantastic conversation. And without any further delays, let's get this show started. Hey folks, today I am joined by the godfather of real estate here on the Everyday Millionaire Podcast, Alfonso Quadro. Thanks for joining me. Looking forward to this conversation, my friend. Woo! I am looking so much forward to this, my friend. Like we were saying before, just two colleagues, two friends, two old friends from uh, you know an industry that's been around for a very long time, and and uh, it's a small world. I mean, you know, you know all of my friends. I know all of your friends, and uh, the question that I had was, how come we don't know each other more, you know? I know. <laughs> Hilarious. Hilarious. But I've been following you. I've been following you around, and we finally were able to catch up, yeah. so it's perfect. I got to start, though, you know, the godfather of real estate, Alfonso. First off, I relate that to age, you know, the, the godfather, and that doesn't need to be, but that's my thing of it. And I'm far older than you. So anyways, tell me a little bit about the godfather well, of real estate. Nine, that's for sure. <laughs> What's that again? Sorry. I said, you don't look a day over 29. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, pal. Okay. So give me the insights into the godfather. Where did that come from? Listen, I've been around in the industry for a long time. So I, I started a business about 27 plus years ago. I've been in real estate for over 23 years. And uh, I started teaching about 16 16, 17 years ago, I started to educate people, you know, doing workshops and seminars and, and mentoring and coaching. And uh, I was on a podcast one day and uh, very much like this, you know, we were having a, a good chat and the person that was doing the, the podcast said, uh, oh, actually, it looks like uh, my friend, you know, so-and-so learned all the real estate from you. And come think of it, my other friend looked, learned the real estate from you. She's like, it's almost like you're like the godfather of real estate, you know? <laughs> and it just means I've been around a while 
and uh, you know they should call me the grandfather of real estate. <laughs> yeah. Dude, you are. Yeah, you're not old enough to be a grandfather. Uh, you know, I've been around a, a long time, right? So ultimately, it was, it's just a fun thing that started on these podcasts, and then people started doing memes of me dressed like the Godfather. And so, you know, I never really had a nickname growing up. And so I leaned into it, you know, and uh, I think it's 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 a fun it's it's a fun it's just a fun nickname. No, for sure. So tell me a little bit, Alfonso, about your background in terms of how did you get started in the real estate world? I mean, you've come a long way. You're a great coach. uh, You've got a great community. But give me a little bit of background about where did real estate show up for you? Yeah, I never really thought about real estate. I mean, no one in my family owned any real estate. Uh, we, we came from a war-torn country back home. But there's been poverty in my life, you know, growing up. My family, there's a cycle of poverty in my, in my, in my family. And so nobody really talked about, you know, investing and, and, and buying assets. And so it came as a result of me. Has started, I started my first business when I was 17 years old. By the time I was 21, uh, that business had grown to uh, locations across Canada, making millions of dollars. And uh, ultimately, I, I almost lost everything. And I find I found myself 24 years old, negative a million dollars. And I was thinking, like, something is wrong here. And so I started to educate myself. I started to read books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, Think and Grow Rich. And, you know, I, I started to realize, you know, the issue was, number one, I was depending too much on one stream. When I re- read about all these wealthy people, they had multiple streams of income. And the one thing that I found that all of these wealthy people had in common was the fact that they all owned real estate. And so at that point, I made a decision, okay, I'm going to rebuild my company because I, I was in tough shape. I didn't go bankrupt, but uh, pretty much I was close to it. But uh, I made a decision that I was going to, educate myself on finances. I was going to learn how to become an investor. And the common thread was, yes, real estate, but no one was talking about their duplex or their their singles. Uh, the majority of the wealthiest people that I read about um, had commercial real estate, whether it be commercial plazas or uh, residential commercial assets. And, th- and so that's kind of like how I started. You know, I started looking for units. You know, I, I love the economy of scale and Kind of that's how it all came about. And but by the time we, we got to like 2009, um, there was a lot of great opportunities and I was able to scale the portfolio to where you see it now. Right. Multi million dollars all across Canada and the U.S. and primarily apartment buildings. That's that's kind of my ammo. When you think about, you know, where you were back at that time. Uh, so just a point of interest is were you born in Canada or your parents immigrated and you and or did you immigrate as a family and where from? So I was not born in Canada. Uh, my daughters are born in Canada, yeah. which is really interesting. They have no context of what it is, you know, uh, back home. I was born in El Salvador mm-hmm. in the in the 70s. And during that time, there was a civil war. I was actually in two different civil wars in Latin America and um you know, we immig- I came here the first time we came as political asylum seekers. Yes. Uh, my mom was involved with uh, with journalism and politics. And, uh, you know, there was a uh, there was a very we were in a very dark place and we, we had to flee our country. And then uh, ultimately we had to go back. And um, and then another sto- another war started 
in Nicaragua, where we were at, and we came here as refugees. So we came here as landing refugees. It's so interesting that, and I love to hear these stories because, you know, there's so much controversy around immigration, around, you know, refugees currently, of course, we're, you know, having many Ukrainian refugees come into the country. A lot of criticism around it. And I'm always inspired by so many that are refugees and like your parents, like you, uh, you come to a country, you have to, you know, get rid of everything at home, at what you know is home. And I got it, it's war-torn or there's lots of political strife or whatever might be going on, but you're literally uprooting your family. You're coming to a country you've never been to before, and then you got to figure shit out. And you have to be able to adapt. You have to be able to, you know, grow and and build a whole new environment and seek, you know, the, I guess, jobs and financial uh, gain and all of the things that, you know, immigrants do and what they're known for, I think. So I think it's an important part because would you say that given your background, uh, once coming out of El Salvador and the family background, I mean, you knew what it was like. So obviously you were probably a little more inspired, if you will, to make things happen. Uh, but what's, what's your kind of view of it? You know, when you look at what you've accomplished. It's so interesting to me. First of all, you said that there's some sometimes there's controversy behind, you know, having so many immigrants. You know, the the one thing that that I know is that immigrants create jobs Mm -hmm. because the people that are that are coming here, they're wanting to work and they're usually uh, taking the jobs that um, people that have already lived here for a very long time don't want. Part of the controversy is, you know, oh, uh, if we have immigration, if we have a, a strong immigration policy, that, um, you know, people are these immigrants are going to come and take our jobs, right? I would say that people that are coming to this country, they're leaving something behind. And so they're willing to work extremely hard and they're willing to invest and they want to become a part of this society, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, I've hired thousands of people. I've employed thousands of families. I've provided homes for uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And so the return on investment in terms of one individual like me, you know, bringing, being able to save, right? Because, you know, Canada opens op- opened this, uh, Canada opens its doors to people from war-torn countries. And we were in a situation where maybe we wouldn't have survived. So Canada opens its doors. Now I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm in Canada. I'm a Canadian. You know, I've grown, I, I grew up here. I went to high school here. You know, I've, I've, I'm pretty much Canadian. I discovered that when I went back home really quickly. <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know, I'm very much Canadianized. But, um, you know, the, that investment, I would say, would be an infinite return on, on Canada's side because I've employed people, I've, I've uh, contributed to the society, I've, you know, donated to causes. I'm, you know, I'm very much about uh, being in a position to give. And so that return on investment. But, you know, I can understand where people are coming from. People don't like change, right? It's like, why do we need to change anything? And so that that uh, that controversy is uh, is interesting. For me, you know, uh, it came to, you know, where I'm at right now came out of necessity. When I was 12 years old, uh, my mom's a single mother. 
we came here, she left everything behind back home. And so there's, you know, the, the income wasn't there. She couldn't continue her profession. Uh, and so, you know, when we got here, uh, you know, I was like 12 years old, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I wanted a pair of Michael Jordan shoes. Mm-hmm. And I said, mom, can I, you know, these shoes, like if I brought these shoes to school, like I would be it, you know? And my mom would say, well, how much are they? And she's like, are you crazy? We're not going to spend, you know, what we spend on groceries for the entire month on a pair of shoes. And so the the industrious part of me came from a necessity of wanting stuff. You know, living the Canadian dream also means that, you know, you want to have stuff. You want to have these experiences. And so I got a paper route. I figured out how to trade stuff. You know, I sold, uh, you know, whatever from my house to get those shoes. And so, you know, that's kind of like the beginnings of this entrepreneurial life that I, that I, that I have. And, and it came from, I would say it came from necessity. When you think about that journey, by the way, I mean, you had your business. Uh, just out of curiosity, again, what was the business that you kind of originally built? It was, it was a clothing store. It was a, a hip hop clothing store. Yep. And I started it in 96. Cool. Now, when you think about, you know, again, you know, immigration, you come into this country. Um, and the reason I spend a little bit of time on it, because I often see, as I know you do, you're dealing with, you know, entrepreneurs and or wannabe real estate investors, people just starting out, they're getting into the multifamily space, big projects, big numbers. When you think about back then, Alfonso, how do you think you overcame the fear? Or was it just you were so driven that you had to do this that maybe the fear was secondary? Because I know that you as a coach have heard this many times. I'm afraid of failure. And we can riff off of that all day long. But what was it for you in terms of where did the courage come from to do what you do? Where did you have to tap into? I I want to say that, uh, you know, because of how bad it was back home that, you know, I was able to be so grateful that it kind of launched me into this, uh, you know, great success. Uh, but I, I totally forgot about that. I mean, you come here to Canada, you, your, your objective is to become Canadian, mm-hmm. right? First of all, you got to learn a language. And, and then once you learn the language, you, you want to, you want to kind of like assimilate into the society. And I lost my way, right? I did lose my way because of the war, because we were moving around so much Actually, between the ages of three to five, I was held in captivity. I was not allowed outside. I was not allowed to interact with other kids. Uh, my mom had, was uh, illegally detained and brought to prison. And uh, they were afraid that the government would use me as a way to get to my mom. So they were afraid they would kidnap me. And so they kept me for, for three years indoors. Then when we left, you know, we were going from country to country um, not really stabilized. And so I didn't go to school like most kids, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, have a full year in school. Every time I went to a new place, I had to kind of start over. And so there was a lot of learning opportunities that I missed. And so when I, uh, try to, uh, integrate into the education system here in Canada, you know, the, the objective is to learn English. Right. And so, you know, that, that once we did that, then they discovered that, you know what, there's a lot of gaps in my learning. Mm. And, um, and so I completely rejected it. 
Um, I was uninspired in school. Uh, they, they, they brought me to special ed. Um, you know, in, instead of being labeled the dumb kid, I preferred to be labeled the bad kid. So I did a lot of bad things to, you know, sure. hopefully mask the, this, this idea that this self-image that I had of myself of being dumb. So I forgot all about being an immigrant. I, I, I was I was just kind of like an outcast, really. Uh, ultimately, I left home when I was 15 years old. I'm living on the streets, panhandling for change. You know, like I was in a really, really dark place. All of that time, I was angry at the world. I didn't think uh, about where I came from, all the opportunities that I had in this country. It was just completely behind me until my daughter was born. When I was 17, I became a dad. Mm. And uh, that changed everything, right? That changed the trajectory of my life. That changed the 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 you know, how I viewed myself, uh, how I viewed the world. And I stopped blaming the world for my problems. And what I realized is the love that I had for my daughter at that moment, and I knew I was willing to do anything for this person. And then it made me realize and reflect on what my mom did for me and all the sacrifices that she had to go through to bring me to this country. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm messing up <laughs> like I'm messing this opportunity. We're we're in the land of the of the most opportunity, like the, the kind of opportunity that you have in Canada. You don't see it anywhere. I mean, people can talk about, you know, the U.S., but in Canada, you know, it's it, it's a very special place. And in my point of view, it's the best country in the world. And I was messing it up. I was messing it up. And uh, at that point. I made a I made a decision that uh, I wasn't going to take it for granted, and I was going to do everything in my power to make sure that my mom's sacrifice to bring me to this country uh, wasn't going to uh, wasn't going to be wasted. So you know when you look at the I guess you know, the way you were inspired, and I've heard these stories before. You know, you're in your case, you were young, you had a daughter, and it was like you got your head out of your butt and said, I got to get to work. And you were able to reflect on things and kind of realize just how good you, you had it. You go into business. Um, where did the real estate component of it, you like, what was the trigger for you? You know, you looked around, you saw other people doing it. You know, I know when I got into real estate back in about 19, no, sorry, uh, 2019, I was a business owner. Still am, you know, still own that business by the way, but you know, all 40 years later. But the the point is, is that I was in business, I was doing my thing. But what I noticed about a lot of the successful business owners that I followed and that I hung out with and or, you know, kind of wanted to model myself after, regardless of how their businesses were doing, they all invested in real estate. Now, that was my trigger. I'm going, well, gosh, if these guys making millions are also investing in real estate, I should kind of pick up on that thought process as well. How was it for you? Like, because you were struggling with real estate or with your business, then you say, well, real estate, I mean, those are numbers just get bigger. Uh, so how did you wrap your mind around that transition from the business to the real estate side of it? I was always fascinated with real estate. I mean, uh, I've always rented. I grew up in Ottawa. So um, I originally entered Canada as a, a refugee to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Where I lived, it was a very bad area in Vancouver. And at some point, my mom, I was getting in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was like 10 years old and the cops were bringing me home. 
And so my mom's like, okay, probably not a, a good place for my son to, to grow up in. And so we went to Ottawa and she thought, you know what? The capital of Canada, uh, there's no way he can get in trouble there. Well, I did. So it turns out I'm the trouble. But anyways, <laughs> that's another story. That's another story. But, you know, ultimately... I remember, uh, so we were in Ottawa housing. So we lived in in in, uh, in Ottawa housing. So in the projects, uh, and uh, you know, everybody's kind of like destitute. Everyone is, uh, you know, broke. And I, and my friends and I would play basketball. And I remember coming home, and we, where we lived, there was it was a high density area. There was all of these buildings. And I remember saying to I remember saying to my friends, "Hey guys, can you believe that there's one person?" that collects all of these rents, right? And imagine if we could be those people, right? Uh, and my friends were like, that's just for rich people. Like, there's no way in hell that that would be, ever be you, right? And, um, you know, so that, that kind of dream was crushed, you know, by my friends. But I was just fascinated with the idea that, you know, one person or one entity or one group of people or one family collects all of these rents, you know, and I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know uh, the mechanics of it. When my daughter was born, I remember, you know, holding, holding her in my, my arms, you know, I'm 17 years old. And I knew that my life was headed, you know, towards a very dark place. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, one day I'd like for my daughter to say, uh, my dad owns the building, not my dad cleans the building or is incarcerated in the building because that's where that's kind of where I was headed. And so those little thoughts came and left, came and left. And so when I started my business, um, I just happened to be in a really good business. I, I happened to be really motivated. I happened to be, you know, uh, I know like, like there was a sense of urgency. I had to make it work. And so the business did work, but I was not a business person. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was very much a consumer and I pretty much spent all the money or mismanaged all the money. You know, it wasn't until reading those books and realizing, whoa, like, you know, you could have been leveraging the money that you that you were making and redirecting that that money and investing in real estate. And if that would have been the case, you wouldn't have been in this situation. Right. And so I remember thinking to myself, whoa, I got to get my shit together. And, uh, you know, I started to look really seriously at real estate as an option of how I was going to build my wealth. So when I went back to rebuild my business, I was working nine to nine, uh, seven days a week. And from 901 to 1 a.m., I was going to build my wealth. I was going to build my empire. And that's kind of like the beginnings of the, this idea that real estate was a, even a possibility because I didn't even think it was a possibility for me. And then my daughter must have been 12 years old. And I'd forgotten all about this. I mean, now I have a portfolio. I'm, I have real estate all over Canada. And I would always bring her to my buildings. And then um, she had brought one of her friends. And we were going down this hallway. And they were kind of in the front. And she was uh, talking to her friend. And she's like, you know, my dad owns this building. <laughs> and so then it hit me. I'm like, oh, whoa, this is this is crazy. Right. I mean, yeah. it had it had grown into this portfolio and I didn't even know that those were the little seeds that I that I had planted in myself long, long time ago. 
So great. Love that story. So when you consider where you are today, you're a coach, you're a teacher, you're still, of course, a business owner and a real estate investor. Let's kind of kind of jump into the present, Alfonso. And I thanks for sharing your background. And we'll dig into that a little bit uh, again. But, you know, when you look at what's going on in the market today and you see what's happening globally, you know, I'm, I'm I don't want to be assumptive, but of course, you, when you're looking at these global macro issues, I'm sure El Salvador is a, you're paying attention to what's going on. I mean, at some point you probably still have friends and or family there. Uh, but when you look around the world and you see Ukraine and Russia and China and India and Europe and UK, I mean, it's a real mess out there. Then we hear in Canada, you know, interest rates are going up, uh, prices are getting out of hand. I'm seeing, and we're both in a similar or the same industry of education and coaching, but you know, I'm seeing a lot of people step to the sidelines and going, I don't even know what to do. So let's kind of position and ask the question of this is that how do you see the market knowing that, like me, you're seeing people freak out, don't know what to do, don't know where to go, don't know how to handle it. How are you painting a picture for investors that you're speaking with in terms of the opportunities that you see? And are you still optimistic about what's going on in the real estate? I'm assuming you are, but I don't know that to be true. Let's kind of unpack that a little bit. Well, there's a lot of things happening uh, worldwide. And I think it all of it is going to create the perfect storm for people. In the next five years, you're going to see the biggest wealth transfer in history. For the first time, the little guy has a chance. And it's a, it's a result of the last 50 years of misinformation in the education system. We have not focused on financial literacy. We have the bi biggest segment of the population, which is the baby boomers, that have pretty much impacted every single industry uh, uh, from the second they were born, all exiting this life, exiting portfolios, eg you know, retiring. And uh, those people have assets and portfolios that they need to hand down and the 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 next generation doesn't want it they don't have a need for it they don't want to manage tenants they were not financially ready to uh, absorb those portfolios even today i've gotten three emails from three different large families in canada where they're looking at um liquidating the portfolio, the, the portfolio. So I, I see it coming. Now mix in, you know, high interest rates and this this idea that, you know what, it's, it's, it's it, it, you know, um, the uncertainty of where we're at, right? I, I think it really creates a situation where there's going to be massive opportunity, right? Now the next year, the next six months, the next six to 12 months are going to be very important for people you're going to start seeing a lot of people bleed out. And it's unfortunate. Like, really, I don't, we don't want to see anybody in, in trouble. Like, you don't want to see people uh, hurt. I don't. I don't I don't want to see it. But it's inevitable. You know, people, you know, you know, made bad decisions, right? They made bad decisions back in 2021, thinking they could do all of these things, and, and, they, and they couldn't. And so there's going to be a lot of opportunity in the next 6 to 12 months. And ultimately, there's still a housing crisis, mm -hmm. right? And this is where people don't really realize that, okay, there's still a need for housing. 
maybe the interest rates are high now, but we're going to be in a very like big trouble in the next three to four years. So all of these things combined, I would say, uh, make it for the perfect storm. And success is just a matter of positioning positioning yourself in front of a wave, right? That wave is going gonna, is gonna to take you. It did for me back in 2009. It did for me even back 2020. 2020, the pandemic was a, 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 a time of expansion for me. You know, that I mean, I did great during the pandemic. And so we are in a very similar situation now. You said to you, some people are on the sidelines. You don't want all these people in the market because that create that, that inflates the prices. I mean, people are buying because they're buying. And, you know, every time interest rates go up, you lose a segment of the competition. Right. There's less people buying, which means more opportunity for us. Well, I think there's a, a lot of things that are unfolding. I know you're you know, something that you were talking about in terms of opportunities showing up and especially in that multifamily space. I mean, immigrants came to. Canada, they bought multifamily units, you know, 40, 50 years later, they're finally going, okay, well, I should get rid of it and or pass it on to my kids. And the kids are going, listen, that was my dad's thing. I don't want anything to do with that crap. I'm not dealing with any of it. Uh, just, you know, show me the money and I'm out. And so that's where a lot of those uh, opportunities, I think, are showing up. And, and you have to be quite skilled at even finding those opportunity. You know, there is a method to the madness in terms of uncovering those gems and that just comes from relationship building and asking the right questions and, you know, really uh, getting to know some of the people that are playing in that particular space. I think that, you know, when you talk about where we see some troubles brewing, you know, certainly more so in, let's say, Toronto-ish and, and Vancouver, where we're seeing the condo market, you know, people got on this bandwagon called real estate's going crazy. Uh, I'm going to get rich. And, uh, you know, when the market's, you know, really hot, everybody's a real estate genius. You know, they don't have any capital gains, but they, you know, haven't experienced capital losses either. So now all of a sudden, you know, the the game they were playing is buy and assign, you know, is uh, that, you know, they got caught. It's like the musical chairs, right? You know, the music stopped and there was no chair. And a lot of people are left holding this particular condo commitment that they've got. And is that where you're also seeing some of the opportunities that are going to show up? If people are in the condo market, what's your view of it? I know that's one space, for example, that is going to be problematic. I mean, there's going to be other issues that show up as well, just with people in their homes and not being able to afford, uh, given the increase in rates. And as much as the banks are kicking the can down the road and extending amortization, OSFI is also putting pressure on the banks and going, no, 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 we got to tighten up some of this lending. So how do you see, when you talk about some of the, perhaps pain that people will experience that creates opportunities for investors who are good at solving problems, uh, not taking advantage of people at solving problems. What's your, uh, what's your kind of read on where you see it? Well, uh, definitely um, the condos, the condos are going to, you know, hope buying and pre-construction and hoping that the pricing is going to, going to go up. Obviously yeah. I don't, I don't even consider those people to be investors or they're speculators and, and, uh, you know, with whether the mar money market, I mean, they're going to they would have ca got caught somewhere. Right. Because people just operate on emotions yeah. uh, where I see a big opportunity is in the office space. Mm. Right? I don't see people going back like they were before. And I, I know that if you're a lender in the office space, 
you're going to want to call your loans back. You're not going to want to refi anything. You're going to just want to keep everything, everybody safe. Uh, what's going to what's going to happen? Well, a lot of these like huge office buildings uh, won't be able to refi, won't be won't be able to continue. And, um, you know, those people are going to be in, in trouble, uh, I would say, probably fall of 2024. And um, there's going to be a lot of opportunity work to do conversions. So picking up, you know, a, a office buildings on 10 cents on a dollar and then repurposing those those, those office buildings to maybe short term rentals. Uh, maybe more units, more multifamily or whatnot. So there is going to be opportunity. And maybe some of these office operators uh, have deep pockets that they can do that themselves. Uh, but some of them are going to get wiped out of the market, you know. And uh, it's unfortunate, uh, of course, but, you know, there there is going to be opportunity there. So I see, I see a lot of that happening. For the longest time, the BRRRRs, in our industry, you know, everybody, I mean, when I started, you know, 23 plus years ago, they called it a refi, but now it's like burr, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, which is fun. It's a fun little name, but uh, people are really attracted to that. So they they went in with a lot of private money. Uh, they went in and bought all of these, uh, all of these buildings, uh, hoping to reposition. And yeah. now they get caught with the, the, high, the higher interest rates. And those people are going to be in trouble as well. Homeowners. Uh, if you're looking to, to relocate, leave the country, or you no longer want to own a property, where you might be in a situation where you might not be able to dispose of your property in a in a timely manner. So those are the things that I see happening in the next six months, six to twelve months, mm -hmm. for the multifamily space. I don't really expect for prices to come down. I expect for the creativity to go up, right? Um, there's a lot of great assumable mortgages. I was just looking at one um, two weeks ago, $7 million, seven years left on the on the mortgage, 1.74% interest rate amortized over 40 years. And so oh. that's a really great asset, you know, that you can assume, right? Mm -hmm. uh, things like agreement for sales, you know, vendor take backs. That is where people are going to live. I don't expect for prices to come crashing down. I just mm -hmm. expect for creativity to go up and if you're in a position where you know what you're doing you're educated and you know you you know how to talk to people build relationships like you said be in a position where you can be a problem solver you're going to be able to tap into one of the greatest opportunities in history you know i couldn't agree more uh, of course we're good friends with barry mcguire who does creative buying strategies and has been doing it for many years 48 years as a real estate lawyer um, and, you know, him and I have had these same conversations. And of course, I've known Barry for 20 years and we see these cycles and we go, this is the time yes. to know how to and understand the dynamic of an agreement for sale and, you know, be able to solve problems for people, even in a rent to own uh, situation right now. If you're really on the ball, there's great rent to own uh, opportunities. So, which is all to say this is I have a fundamental philosophy is that there is no bad real estate markets. There's just the wrong strategy and tactic in the wrong part of the real estate cycle. It doesn't matter where you are in Canada. It doesn't really matter too much what's going on in real estate. Just use the right strategy and Absolutely. you will still be very successful at that, which is of course, I think, you know, something that you're really saying in all of this is that there's opportunities that are unfolding uh, you know, as we speak, and they're only going to increase as this whole 
economic, uh, the, the current economic conditions start to unfold. And I think we've got some, some pain going forward, whether it's a hard landing, soft landing. I mean, that's still yet to be determined, to be honest with you. You know, when I look at what's happening economically, I really don't see a hard landing, but so much can go wrong uh, in, in the period of time, given what's happening on a global scale. You know, one of the things that people are always talking about, Alfonso, and I'd like your opinion of this. I have mine and I'll share it. But uh, what's your thoughts on interest rates? It's so topic, you know, like it's a big topic. Everybody's going, they got to raise them. They're going to go higher. Uh, of course, we just got what I refer to as a sucker punch. You know, the wind knocked out of us because we got punched in the belly by a, a rate increase and the threat of another uh, to follow up. But when you look at interest rates as an influencer in the real estate cycle. Uh, what's your kind of view of where you think interest rates might go over the next year or two or three, whatever your view is? This is what I know. Every single year in the NHL, they change a rule. They change the rules all the yeah. time. But professional NHL players show up and play within the new rules, right? Mm -hmm. And so as real estate investors, we have to play within the new rules. Whatever the new rules are, whether the interest rates are up or down or two, you know, the two years ago we were complaining that, uh, you know, you can't find deals because you have, you know, 65 offers on one property, right? I mean, there's always going to be something, right? You just have to make the best decision with the information you have, yep. right? Back in December, you know, we were doing this, uh, you know, $14.5 million deal. Uh, the mortgage was $10 million. And what we did, because we, you know, we go with lenders that go, they go from the bond market, not the overnight rate. And so the bond market had come down. And so we were able to lock in uh, at 4.4%. Well, there was also the opportunity to buy down the rate. So mm -hmm. we, we put an extra $150,000 to buy down the rate to about 4.2. Okay. And over the long, the lifespan of that mortgage, we would definitely make up that money for sure. And so we did that. We, we locked it in. We fixed the rate. We were closing December 14th. By the time we closed, the bond market had gone down below 4%, right? And yeah. so what do you do? You know, I had to make the best decision with the information that I had, right? Sure. And so I fixed the rate at that time even though it went slightly lower, but it could have gone the other way. I could have been sitting there with a $10 million mortgage and now I got to pay 5%. It, 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 it wouldn't have been feasible. And so this is what I tell people, make sure you stress test your own deals. You, you can think about, ask yourself, what is the worst case scenario here, right? What is the worst case scenario here? Well, you know, the interest rates go up to 15% in the short term. Okay, good. Okay, there are 15%. And you locked it in how much? Well, 7%. Okay. Can you survive with the 7% for the next five years? Yeah. Okay. So if you can deal with the worst case scenario and you're okay with it, then, you know, that's how you get, that's what's going to dictate your decisions. Right. But sometimes people get into this, into investments, wishing and hoping things are going to happen. Yeah. Right. They're, they're smoking the hopium. And so, you know, they're like, okay, don't worry. Interest rates are going to come down. I'm sure they're going to come down. So I'm going to do a, a two-year term or whatnot. Yeah. But what if they don't? What if they don't? Are you going to be okay? Is your family going to be okay? Are you guys going to be eating sardines every day? Or, or you got to eat, 
mac and cheese for the rest for for six months to to, to make sure that you, you you stay above water, and so you have to be, ask yourself every single time whether the everything is high, whether we're an expanding market or or declining market. Am I willing to deal with the worst case scenario? And the answer is yes. Then then that's that should go into your decision making. You know, I think you make such great points in all of that, which is, you know, sophisticated investors understand one fundamental. What's my plan A? What's my plan B? And even if I can, I want to put a plan C in behind it, because that's really, although it feels like you're playing defense and being very conservative, that is the smart way to go. When you think about going back to the, you know, one of our, our earlier conversation a moment ago, which is those individuals who are speculating, the only exit strategy that they were counting on was to assign that deal. The music stops, all of a sudden nobody's interested in an assignment and or at least at that price. And the next thing you know, they're taking a loss. And that's because there was no plan B, no plan C. It was their only option when they bought the property. And to your point, uh, you know, we all refer that as you know gambling and or speculating. Doesn't matter how you look at it; it's not the smart move to make. You know, when you look forward, Alfonso, and you think about what's going on in the U.S., there's so much controversy these days. I know you play in the U.S. market, but you certainly are hearing the stories about the U.S. losing reserve currency, and you know what happens if. Trump gets in, Biden's out, or DeSantis is in, whatever the story, when you kind of assess a market like the U.S., uh, are you very specific in terms of the states that you're in? Uh, how are you looking at economic conditions? Uh, again, I want to just touch on what's your thoughts are on even reserve currency. Are you paying attention to that, or is, is that a little bit just a, like noise to you? doesn't matter. We're moving forward. Give me your thoughts on that. Well, uh, if you want to be wealthy, you have to study wealth. If you want to be wealthy, you have to study the monetary system and you need to understand money, right? Mm -hmm. And we already know that after 1971, uh, they move, removed the gold standard from the, 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 US, dollar, yeah. the US dollar. Uh, all currencies became fiat currencies. Yeah. Um, as Canadians, we often look at, you know, it's almost like we're looking out the window at our, at our crazy neighbor, right? And we're just laughing, eating, you know, eating popcorn from the outside. But what Canadians don't really understand is like we are indirectly connected to that economy. Mm -hmm. You know, the reserve currency means that all currencies, all currencies that are subscribed to that, that, that monetary system, we are connected to that currency. So if the U.S. goes down. We all go down in terms of the, the value of money. But I have a question for you. We know about hyperinflation. Right. And we know what can happen with hyperinflation when I mean, what does it mean when we talk about currency? Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's a perceived value when that perceived value is no longer there. Money becomes worthless. Right. Pieces of paper. And so what do you think the the debt, the the, the U.S. national debt? What do you think? What do you think we're at? And I'm asking you because I don't really know. I think it's in trillion something, but I don't know the exact number, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 astronomical. It's like 30 trillion or something like trillion along trillion. that line. You what know Canada? what's that? What about Canada? Well, Canada personal debt is about 186% of uh, debt to uh, income. Uh, so we're over the top personally, uh, government in terms of what our our combined is, I want to say it's about 130%, something like that. So 
I mean, we took on, our government took on a ton of debt, uh, no doubt about it. You know, they overreacted in my world to what were these pandemic conditions. They used it as a license to uh, flood the market with capital. Uh, you know, that's a lot to do with where we are today. We now have uh, interest rates going up and the debt has to be serviced. Right. Our government, sadly, and I can rant on this for a long time, uh, we are a non-productive country. We are sadly non-productive. We are debt-driven consumerism. And a lot of our economy, our GDP, is built off of housing, for example. Uh, our manufacturing has been declining for years. Uh, we invest very little capital into research and development, sadly. Uh, the immigration, which we talked about earlier, Alfonso, yeah, that's really supporting this economy, but it's because a lot of people are setting up house. So there again, it is based on consumerism as opposed to why aren't we exporting tons of commodities? We have what the world needs. You know, everything from oil to fertilizer to lithium, you name it, we have it. Yet our imports exports are almost virtually net zero. You know, our exports are sometimes more than our imports a little bit and vice versa. The point is, when we look at what's happening in Canada, we look at the debt, to your point, the monetary, uh, the flooding of the monetary system or of currency uh, certainly has a huge impact on all that we're doing. And in, even on the comment that you made about, you know, the U.S., uh, Canada being so connected to the U.S., that's who we farmed our research and development out to. So rather than driving our economy. I know I'm going a little bit long on this because I'm pretty passionate about uh, just how incompetent our government is in Bank of Canada. I've said it many times. I want to be the guy that looks at Tiff Macklem and goes, you're fired. <laughs> I'd like to do the same with Trudeau. That's a totally different conversation. But I think there's a, you know, there's a fundamental around the U.S. and Canada and why we have to pay attention to what's going on in the U.S. You know, there's a little meme or a little phrase that's, you know, really old, but it is basically... You know, when the U.S. sneezes, Canada catches a cold. And ultimately, that's what's going to and we are at risk of having happen given uh, these global issues and the devaluation, if you will, of the U.S. dollar and, and the you know ultimate collapse of the U.S. as a reserve currency. Now, that's not to say that's going to happen tomorrow or next year. Uh, yeah, no one has a crystal ball. It will definitely happen. We just don't know when. So, so th this is what I wanted to get at, you know, uh, so we understand there's a, these, the governments are definitely, definitely taking on massive amounts of debt. Yes. I mean, we, we, we talked about 30 trillion or whatever. I mean, people throw these numbers around, like, have you ever seen a trillion dollars? Like, like you wouldn't even be able to fit it in this office building, yeah. right? A, a trillion dollars is a lot of money. Yeah. And so here's my next question. What happens if the currency? So the first question is, how in the world are they going to pay this back? Okay, that's the first question. The second, the, the, the second question is, what happens if there's a complete collapse of the monetary system? Mm -hmm. What happens to all that debt? Well, you know, there's there's uh, lots of conversation around a you know debt jubilee. I mean, maybe that's a possibility. Maybe they just forgive it all. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't. Ultimately, if we hit, if we if we hit hyperinflation, yeah, and the value now all of a sudden the value of that trillion dollars is really more, you know, more like a hundred million. In essence, that is how they're going to pay for their debt, yeah. right? In essence, when you look at it, 
it, it there is there 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 is a benefit to the government for going into hyperinflation, right, and collapsing the monetary system, resetting it, and putting in something else, putting in a new monetary system. Again, no one has a crystal ball, and we don't want to be, uh, uh, you know, we don't want to be like talking about the dark side or con conspiracy theories. But ultimately, everyone that's listening to this, do some research. You know, back in 1944, they reset the, the monetary system to, you know, create what we currently uh, are utilizing today, right? Mm -hmm. And that was just in 1944. Yeah. And so uh, 19, 1971, there was another form of, of reset where they just removed the gold standard from the, from the U.S. dollar, right? Making it a fiat currency. And so ultimately, people just need to be educated and you should pay attention to what's going on. Now, I'm not I'm not a political person. Like, I don't pick sides. I just want efficiency. I'm pro efficiency. Less about <laughs> what people want to less about the choices that people want to make in their lives and more about, you know, productivity and efficiency, you know? Yeah. Well, I think there's a, you know, we get into the politics of anything and, you know, sadly, I don't care what the government is, to your point, I don't think you can say government and efficiency and have them in the same sentence. It doesn't exist. You know, uh, they, they go out of their way to create the bureaucracy because that's what drives the jobs. And so, you know, to your point, we don't want to always look at the doom and gloom and the dark side. You know, I, I have a tendency to look at that dark side only because when I come to the community of real estate investors or our community of investors, you know, part of what we provide is a perspective, some research that we do for you to investigate further to kind of start to form your thesis around it. You know, when we look at what's happening in the monetary system and the debt, and we know that taxflation is a real thing. I mean, all we have to do is look at what's going on at the gas pumps to know that, guess what? The government loves inflated prices because, of course, tax comes along with that. And they're going to add to that now with what they call climate crisis. There's always an excuse to print more money and to create more tax. And at the end of the day, we have to have that tax revenue to pay the astronomical debt that we as a country have taken on. And Canada is not alone in any of that conversation. My point is around all of this, Alfonso, and you know this and we know this, is that, you know, we have to look at the dark side to actually say, OK, well, how are we going to approach the future and create a financial future for our family. And, you know, in our case, we look at real estate as a very, very proven. And even if you look at it logically, you can say, no, real estate is going to be that hedge that we have against the inflation that we're bound to hit. And there's going to be a, lots of deflation, by the way. I get all that technology. But at the end of the day, we've got a small country or a, we've got a limited amount of housing for a lot of people coming into a country who are going to require housing. Canada is not going to go away of being that country that immigrants come into and we have to hedge our bet. And that is one way to do it is to invest in real estate inside of the scope of, you know, variable rates or rates that those influencers that rates are up, rates are down, you know, uh, rents are up, rents are down, unemployment's up, unemployment's down. We're looking at those economic fundamentals. The point is, when we're looking at where to park capital, real estate still works. I like to hedge a little bit diversification. I own some Bitcoin. I own some precious metals. That's all, I think, part of my own hedge based on what I'm seeing economically. And I share that often with the community. 
is that really that's what it's about. If you've got money in the bank, you better be doing it strategically as in I think liquidity, uh, as you know, Alfonso, is really important. And sometimes it's hard to manage that liquidity or keep it. But you also have to say, as I have that liquidity sitting off to the side, you know, you know that it's you know going away, you know, it's devaluing. So it's a balance that we have to strike as investors and as business owners. So I went on a little bit. I don't know if that gave you an opening for a uh, to extend that conversation or not. I hope that. Absolutely. I mean, you need to, you know, you make money, you need to invest it into income producing assets, mm-hmm. right? And ultimately the, the word current is in the word currency. If it's not moving and it's stagnant, it's losing money. Every single second it, mm-hmm. it's, it's stagnant. The lending, the amount of money, the 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 volume of money, the volatility volatility of all the money moving around. If you stop, you know you're gonna have problems, right? Yeah. And um, you know this is what what the government's trying to do. You know they've always used this this lever, which is interest rates, to manage inflation, but it's the wrong lever because you know what? You can't shut the world down for two years, print all this money and not have consequences. And so we're living as a result of those consequences. I just yeah. want the Go people that are, that are watching this or the, that are listening to this podcast. And this is a really, really, really interesting subject because a lot of people really just want to talk about, you know, all the great things that are happening in real estate. Uh, but it, it is, it is, it, these are things that, to, that you're going to want to pay attention to. Right. You're going to want to pay attention to inflation. You're going to want to pay attention to what's happening and what's the the political climate in the U.S., uh, regardless of what side you're on. Right. That's that's really that's beside the point. It's just you need to pay attention because those moves can affect the money that you have. And so ultimately, what I always share with people is like, listen, Warren Buffett said it best. When people are greedy, you should be fearful when you're when people are fearful you should be greedy, right? And right now, it's all about, and you know, I don't know if people have the time to figure this thing out on their own because I I look at probably a 12-month window where you're going to see all of this opportunity in real estate. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is, these are the decisions that are people going to be making. And of course, you want to be, you want to be smart. You want to be smart about the decisions you're making. There's a couple things around this and you do have to be smart. And I think that uh, hopefully, you know, we're delivering value here to those individuals listening. There is an education that's required in order to move forward. And what I see a lot is people like to chase real estate and then get an education while they're chasing it. We need to get out in front of it. You start to educate now. There's a phrase, right? You know, uh, an old real estate investor friend of mine, Arlen Dolan, used this one. I don't know where he got it from, but, you know, he would often say, you can't steal in slow motion. And everybody kind of go, what the hell do you mean by that? Like, that's weird. But his point was, is that you have to be prepared when these deals show up. If you have the education, number one, you know what to do next. You know how to approach it and you know how to actually capture that opportunity and or and or create the opportunity. And so when you can't steal in slow motion, it means to say you have to be prepared in advance. And education, like money, you know, you have to have that financing ready to go. You have to know where your money's coming from and where it's going. So these are all things that we have to consider uh, when we're looking at, you know, investing in real estate and being prepared. 
and that is getting the education. And whether that's specific to real estate, I think that's certainly necessary. Uh, 100% is necessary. But you have to look at the bigger picture because real estate is just a, is one thing, but how that real estate works in the environment, the current economy is another aspect of it that you have to understand the connections of, for example, the economic fundamentals, uh, for example, the influencers such as interest rates. Interest rates go up, they go down. Uh, economic fundamentals are always there to see the future. Uh, so we then have to consider the education that's required to do that, to make really wise decisions, at least decisions based on a well-thought-out thesis. And not they're not always right. I got it. But you, listen, you, it's, you can't just throw uh, stuff up against the wall to see what sticks is my point around all of that, Alfonso. Yeah, well, you know, if you can jump into your DeLorean, right? We'll have one right here. Oh, you have a DeLorean? Good for you. If you can jump into this DeLorean and go back to April of 2020 yeah. and you found yourself, you found yourself, what would you say to yourself about real estate and what to do? Mm -hmm. You know, if you were talking to yourself in 2020, April of 2020, what would you say to yourself? Well, you know, that's so interesting. I, a couple, I don't know if you know this, but so rain, as in uh, we do a lot of research, as you're aware, and we literally released our report on COVID in December of 2019. And we were looking, although we didn't know the impact, and we certainly didn't understand that they would shut the world down. Uh, we were already looking at that saying, what is the impact going to be of COVID? So that was already a conversation. In April of 2020, you know, we were on stage very quickly. Well, our last event was March 7th in Calgary, 450 people in Calgary at one of our acre events. We then were shut down on March 15th and, you know, in we pivoted very quickly because we were already doing Zoom. So for us, it was just whatever, you know, invite people to the link because we were already totally engaged in it. But in April, to your point, in April 2020, we were saying to many is that we don't know what the opportunity is going to be, but this will open up the door to more opportunities in real estate than we've ever seen in this lifetime. And although I don't know if it was that true in terms of a lifetime we realized that there was opportunities coming our way. There always is in chaos. There yeah. always will be in that chaos. That's how we viewed it. So to answer your question, could have, should have bought more real estate. So <laughs> yeah, that's the end of the day, right? So, so now we're in 2023, going into 2024. And this DeLorean shows up again. Mm -hmm. And you jump out of it mm -hmm. from the future. What would, you, what, what would your future self say to you now? My future self hasn't going to change the narrative. Again, uh, you know, I'm a little bit different phase of my life. So if you're asking me that question, I'm managing an existing portfolio. What's that? I'm 29. I know. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I'm in a different phase of my managing my portfolio. So the point is, I would still add to my portfolio. Uh, again, I'm going to investigate and look at very, very strategically. So for me, I'm going to continue to invest in real estate. I'm not going to be hands-on in the trenches buying real estate. I'm actually tapping into things that are really more hands-off, but real estate focused and opening up yes. the door of opportunity to put my capital to work. That that becomes my strategy given where I am in my life and what's going on. These opportunities come like this. No yep. one was expecting 
COVID-19. And, and of course, no one is expecting for the government to deliberately try to put real estate into the gutter, right? No one was expecting these, these things. Yeah. And so you need to be educated. You need, you, this is not even a chance for, you don't have the time to try to figure this out on your own. And this is why, you know, we came together because we're both educators in this industry. And, um, you know, who's ever listening to this, the first job is to get educated, not wait until the opportunities pass you and, you know, figure things out later on or figure things out by making mistakes because we've already made all the mistakes, right? <laughs> You're still going to make your own mistakes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, like you, there's no time to wait and you, you got to get educated in order to take advantage of the opportunities. People think you have to be in the right place at the right time. That's 100%. incorrect. You're always in the right place and it's always the right time. You mm. are just not aware of the opportunity, right? Yeah. So, you know, the last time you looked at, you were looking at a car and you're like, oh, I like this car, you know, and then all of a sudden you saw it everywhere is because mm. now you became aware of that, of that vehicle, of whatever it was. And so once you get around a group of people that are like-minded, where you everyone's sharing the same education, you are now going to become aware of more opportunities than the average person. Well, yeah, that's so true. Community, culture, environment, those are my, you know, really go-to in terms of getting people to understand that when you surround yourself with like-minded individuals who are you know, have similar aspirations, who see the world through the same lens as you do, that's where opportunities start to present themselves. And so we are both uh, many years later, we see it time and time again. And we also see where people just kind of fall off. They go away. They don't engage in the community. They don't create the financial future that they want uh, because they are, for whatever reason, distracted and going down, you know, paths that don't support what it is they're trying to achieve in that financial future. And real estate, let's face it, Alfonso, you know, we look at different strategies and some people are buying for income, others, you know, income as in today income, others are investing for future income, uh, even understanding the difference between those two uh, initiatives or those two goals is really important to the decision-making process that we have. I mean, we've often heard about people going, I just want to get $1,000 a month in a buy and hole and have passive income. And you go, okay, hold on. When do you think you're going to have that passive income exactly? You know, are you thinking that you're going to have it next month, uh, next year, or are you really looking into the future or do you need income for today? Totally different view of the world and strategies that you have to engage to do that. Again, to your point, when you get that education, you start to understand how to determine what it is that you need to do to achieve whatever goal you might have. That's that's kind of a my Cole's notes of that. <laughs> nice. Well, I know that that uh, you know there's different ways of uh, looking at life, and of course, we we live in an economic planet, yep. and uh, it's fueled by consumerism, and and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's the consumer mindset versus the investor mindset. Yeah. And you can't you can't look at a problem with the same mindset that you got into it and expect a different result, right? You got to, you have to have, you have to think laterally. You got to think outside of the box, right? And I think people, they, they become uh, accustomed to that monthly income or the, the, the income that comes in from their job, right? 
and the way I compare it is like the, the, the zoo lion versus the lion in the jungle. The zoo lion knows that at 12 o'clock, the zookeeper is going to come in. It's going to come in with food. And mm -hmm. the lion doesn't really have to do anything. It just They just know that, you know, that, that, that food is going to come in. And uh, the problem is the lion is stuck in a cage, right? That's the problem. The good news is it's got food every day at noon. The, zookeep the, zoo the zookeeper comes in and there's your meat. Um, on the other hand, the, the, the jungle lion maybe doesn't have a, that, that meal exactly at noon. But when that lion eats, he's going to eat real good, right? Mm -hmm. And he can roam free in the jungle and no one can, can, can dictate what he's supposed to do with his time. And so if you take that zoo lion and you, take, you put him in the jungle, he's not even going to know how to survive. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first step. You know, most people say, oh, I want to get a month, a thousand dollars monthly income. Right. Most most of the time people are are looking at things from the consumer mindset. The consumer mindset says I need a monthly income of X so I can pay X, 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 X. Right. Like they got their Everything is set up for that monthly income. Right. Yeah. But mm -hmm. if you go into the investor mindset and the mindset of the jungle lion. I don't focus on how much I'm making per month. I know that money comes in in chunks, right? And it goes into my corporations and I don't even focus on how much I'm going to pay myself if my bills are paid or whatnot. I have definitely have a team that can, that can look at that, but mm -hmm. I'm looking for where's my next meal, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going after where's the next chunk can it come from Yeah. for real estate investors? Primarily that comes from these refis, right? That you're going to have these big, refi refis that are going to come in owning something for a long period of time an asset like i have some assets that i've owned for over 20 years yeah i've buy these things like six times already right mm -hmm. and so that's the, cons the 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 investor mindset it's not really focused on a monthly income we're really focused on what is the return on investment Right. I can wait a year for someone, you know, if I'm going to invest into someone's deal, they can come back a year. As long as there's more money that comes back than it went out, you know, I'm good. And so those are two different distinct ways of thinking. And uh, most people, they get caught up with the I got to make thousand dollars a month. I'm like, really? That's it. I'll give you an example. I was talking. We're hiring here. And uh, I said, how much do you want to make? The guy says, uh, I want to make 60 K. And he said it's quickly, 60K. He knew exactly how much he wanted. I'm like, why 60K? He's like, well, in my other job, they pay me 55. <laughs> so I'm like, that's why you want to make 60K, right? So this is kind of where we get caught up with those monthly, you know, yeah. monthly money that comes in, which is earned income versus being an investor, a true investor that uh, not, you're not even focused on the income. Of course, income is important, but, uh, you know, you'll quickly yep. realize why Steve Jobs paid himself $1. Yeah. Love that analogy, by the way. So, Alfonso, uh, appreciate your time today. And as we start to wind down, I like to have a little bit of fun with my guests and uh, do some what I call rapid fire questions that, as my listeners know, are generally not all that rapid. But let's try and see if we can fire off some rapid fire questions. And uh, you ready for this? I'm ready. Beautiful. I knew you would be. So, Alfonso, uh, aside from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because I know that was one of those epic books that you read that kind of set you on a path. What's a book that you would uh, say that you uh, was impactful on your life and or that you still like to 
uh, give as a gift or recommend? There's so many. I mean, um, there's the classics, of course, like the Thinking Grow Rich, you know. Yeah. But then there's newer books that I have really, really, and I had to go back and and uh, and really get into these books because we read so many books. Yes. I I I, uh, I often tell people, okay, that's great. You're reading all these books. Like I, I'm I'm watching someone on Facebook. I have a hundred book a year challenge. I'm like, okay, but what did you do? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, I I'm more along the lines of reading a book, digesting a book, and going out putting the the strategies to 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 work. I really like the Atomic Hammock, uh, Atomic yeah, Habits. Atomic Habits, yeah. And then and when this one here, I have it here. And uh, who not how? Yes. And every entrepreneur needs to read this book. Uh, if you haven't read it, uh, read it. And if you if you've read it, read it again. Do it again. Beautiful. Thanks for that. Do you have a favorite quote that you like to go to? Something that inspires you and or gets you grounded? Whatever it is. Do you have a favorite absolutely, quote? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a big believer in setting big goals, right? A big part of my philosophy is about living in expansion, always challenging yourself, always growing, um, having big targets, but not for the money or the or the material part of it, but to see the person that you're going to become on the way to achieving those goals. Mm -hmm. So my favorite quote is from Jim Rohn. He said, success is what you attract by the person you become. Beautiful. Love that quote. Very good. Do you have a uh, favorite song, favorite tune as in, or a favorite band that you kind of go to? Music is everywhere for me because uh, I have very eclectic, you know, um, music, music, uh, very, a lot, lot of genres, right? Yeah. I definitely like hip hop. You know, I'm a hip hop head. Uh, you are? Okay. Uh, absolutely. And um, there's, uh, there's lots of songs in hip hop, but, you know, I, I like the Fly Like an Eagle, right? Mm. That song really inspires me. Fly Like an Eagle, right? And yeah. it's just like, yeah. I just feel so inspired uh, when I listen to that song. And so I would say Fly Like an Eagle. Beautiful. How about favorite movie? Matrix. Oh, good movie for sure. <laughs> favorite, favorite swear word. Favorite swear word. Definitely, you gotta you gotta use the f word. You know what I mean. The f bomb yeah. really solidifies it. When you say the f, when you drop the f bomb, you know you mean business. I mean, it, it you know, really has an impact on people. A hundred percent. You know, but it's interesting, and I'm because I'm an f bomber all the time, and uh, you know, to me, it's like an exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, but I have guests that go. I ask them that question. They go, Yeah, no, I don't swear. Yeah. How is that possible? Anyways, where uh, you know, and, and uh, so I have you know the f bomb is you know impactful, and uh, and then there's there's the the other one in, in in my language, which is I speak Spanish. I don't know the the, the language is more descriptive for swearing for some reason, and uh, when I have to swear, I I usually do it in my language. <laughs> one, so people don't know what I'm saying, but two, I just it just it's closer to home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Stay grounded. Yeah. And That's an interesting okay. question, by the way. I've never been asked that question. <laughs> it's really interesting. You can really get to know a lot about a person by knowing their favorite swear word. That's I love it. <laughs> it's a statement, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, finally, Alfonso, what are you grateful for? I am grateful for uh, being in the position I am today inspiring thousands and thousands of people, creating freedom in this world, helping people. I'm grateful for, you know, being given this opportunity to, to help so many people. 
Fantastic. Well, today I'm always grateful for my family and uh, my home. Uh, I'm always grateful to get to know my guests. Uh, you know, part of you being on the podcast today was because uh, your reputation precedes you. And I had a number of individuals who said, you know, you should get Alfonso on your show. He's a cool cat. And uh, so, you know, that is a statement of who you are and the reputation that you have built, the brand of what you've built. And uh, so I'm very grateful to have had you join me today, share your wisdom with the audience. So I want to just say thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you. And this was so much fun. I mean, like I've never had so much fun in a podcast ever. And out of all the podcasts that I've ever had the opportunity to, to be, in, be on, you, my friend, are definitely the most recent. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I loved it here. I love my time here with you. Beautiful. Thanks, Alfonso. We'll see you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.